Questions to the Prime Minister. Gwyn Prosser. Number one, sir. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In my addition to my duties in the House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Gwyn Prosser. Mr Speaker, uh, no one knows better than my constituents the huge effects that cross-channel cooperation and our new border controls have had on clamping down on illegal immigration. But there's more work to be done. What will my right honourable friend be discussing with our new friend, uh, President Sarkozy, tomorrow to continue the work of improving and reforming our immigration schemes, for strengthening our economies and for getting a grip with the militant with the, with the militants uh, in Calais? Uh, uh, Mr Speaker, let, let me first of all uh, thank uh, my honourable friend for his question and welcome President Sarkozy and his wife to Britain. And, and I, 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 believe, I believe that our talks in the next few days will be very constructive. He is absolutely right about illegal immigration and I hope in our talks today and tomorrow we can agree to tighten up controls at Calais. I hope also we can have an agreement that there will be no further immigration centres like Sangat and that will not happen in the future. And I also believe, given the present uh, global financial turbulence and the fact that in one country in the last day interest rates have moved to 15%, it is right that France and Britain agree measures that we can put to the international institutions over the next few days that will strengthen the stability of our economies, deal with problems of lack of transparency in financial information and make sure that the European economies together uh, can continue to grow. That is only possible because we want a Britain at the heart of Europe and not detached from Europe. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I join the Prime Minister in welcoming President Sarkozy and Mrs Sarkozy to Britain. It is now nearly eight months since the start of the credit crunch, and one of the key questions is how well prepared we are. Does the Prime Minister now accept that in terms of financial regulation, the UK has been shown to have some serious failings? We've already uh, looked at some of the changes that can be made, both in the Financial Services Authority and there's a report of the Treasury Committee today uh, and in the Bank of England. But if I may say so, if he now looks around the world and sees what happens to Bear Stern, see that three banks have uh, fallen in Germany, what happened to Society Generale in France, then he'll see that we have been better protected than other countries against the global financial turbulence. And it's precisely because we didn't take the advice that would have caused instability from the opposition. People around the world are making a contrast between Bear Stearns, where a rescue was organised in just a few days, and Northern Rock, where there was months of dithering. I know the Prime Minister, I know that the Prime Minister created the regulatory system, but he needs to be frank about its failings. The FSA report today is a remarkable report which says the supervision of Northern Rock revealed the most significant combination of shortcomings, yet not a word about that from the Prime Minister. The Director-General of the CBI says that this was the first new test of the tripartite system and it failed to deliver the goods. So that we're better prepared in future, does the Prime Minister agree with me that the Bank of England, not the Financial Services Authority, should be in charge of rescuing banks that fail? Mr. Speaker, first of all, until a few weeks ago, he supported what we did on Northern Rock, so it makes no sense for him to criticise now. Uh, se secondly, as far as the Financial Services Authority is concerned, it is true 
that the Financial Services Authority have been regulating for solvency and they've done a good job. The problem arose in terms of liquidity and that's where further efforts have got to be made. But that is true as the President of America's report is saying for the American financial system, it's true of the French and the German financial system as well, and all countries are realizing that you've got to do more to protect against illiquidity, and they also know that there's got to be greater transparency in the financial system. So the lessons that are being learned are being learned around the world, and I repeat, uh, the Conservative Party actually published a document in the last two days saying, saying that far from Britain doing badly, real living standards in Britain amongst pensioners had risen by £1,500 since 2001, from single women pensions £1,000, couples £700. That's page 16 of the Conservatives' own document. What is... I'll tell you what that document said. It said since this man became Prime Minister, the price of milk is up 17%, the price of eggs is up 28%, the price of bread is up 34%. That's the real cost of living under Labour. But the Prime Minister, in his last answer, said an extraordinary thing. He said the Financial Services Authority has done a good job. What he hasn't read is the report out today by the Financial Services Authority that says this. The Financial Services Authority is short of expertise in some fundamental areas, notably prudential banking experience and financial data analysis. Aren't those the absolutely key things you need to be a regulator? Isn't that why the Bank of England should be in charge of these rescues rather than the Financial Services Authority? The Chancellor. They don't like to hear the extent of the failure. The extent of the failure put in, of the system put in place by the Prime Minister. Now, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, the, the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor have made several U-turns recently. Why don't they make one more U-turn and make the Bank of England responsible? Well, well, well Mr. Speaker, I know what the Chairman of his Defence Commission meant, Frederick Forsyth, when he said that David Cameron has a sceptic has a sketchy grasp of basic arithmetic because he does not understand what is happening. The FSA have admitted that they must do more about liquidity problems, but every financial organisation around the world that is regulating markets is accepting the need to do more. And I think he would be better addressing the real problem that we have faced. The real problem that we have been faced is off-balance sheet activities, write-offs that have not been properly declared, credit rating agencies that have done the job of being advisers as well as raters, and these are the problems that have got to be addressed. Instead of just blaming the Financial Services Authority, he should look at the real problems that President Sarkozy and I will address today, and the real problems will not be solved by someone who's got no basic grasp of arithmetic. Order, order. Leader of the Opposition. It's time the order. Prime Minister and the Chancellor... Order. The Leader of the Opposition. It's time the Prime Minister and the Chancellor realise that one of the real problems facing Britain is their economic mismanagement. Yeah. It is frankly pathetic to listen to the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom read out quotes from a novelist when he actually ought to be, he ought to be reading out from the Financial Services Authority report. A key point in terms of how well prepared we are is the size of the government's budget deficit. 
Out of 55 major world economies, only three economies have a bigger budget deficit than Britain. That's why he's putting up taxes. Most other countries are helping families with the cost of living. This government is hitting them. Can he name, can he name one other major country that's just introduced a budget putting up taxes? Name one. Mr Speaker, Mr. Speaker, we are injecting more money into the economy this year. We are not taking money out of the economy. We are cutting the basic rate of income tax to 20p. And let, let us just compare, Mr Speaker, what was happening in the last world downturn. 15% interest rates, 10% inflation, 3 million people unemployed, public spending being cut, then taxes rising dramatically with VAT on fuel. And let's compare that with what's happening now. We have low inflation, low interest rates. We have the highest levels of employment in our history. Unemployment the lowest since 1975. And public services continue to expand. And if he doesn't accept that today, just remember that he said on Monday on BBC Radio London, interest rates, he states, still look low historically. We have kept interest rates low. Not only... Not only has the Prime Minister, not only has the Prime Minister not read the report from the Financial Services Authority, it's pretty clear he hasn't read his own budget. Pages 111 and 112 of the Red Book show taxes going up in the budget. Everybody knows taxes have just gone up. Every time you fill up the car, taxes have gone up. Every time you buy a car, taxes have gone up. Every time the family goes shopping. No wonder. No wonder every pub in Britain is trying to ban the Chancellor from having a pint. Let me ask, he hasn't answered a single question, so let's just try this once again. Can he name one other major country that is responding to the downturn by putting up taxes? Name one. Mr Speaker, we are, in, Mr. Speaker, we are injecting more money into the economy this year. He simply does not understand basic arithmetic. The basic rate of income tax is going down to 20p. And let us, let us look at our record. Inflation in Britain is 2.5%. In America, it's 4%. In the euro area, it's over 3%. So which country has the lowest rate of inflation of the major countries? It is Britain. We have kept interest rates low. And where unemployment is 8% in Germany, 8% in France, rising in America, unemployment is the lowest in Britain since 1975, and is half the rate of our European partners. Now that is a government that is better prepared for a world downturn. The problem is that the Conservative Party want 10 billion of tax cuts. They want to say they'll raise public expenditure. They want to say borrowing should fall. They want tax cuts at the moment, they say, to boost the economy. That is the same recipe they followed in 1992, and it led to the worst recession since the war. And who was the economic adviser to the Treasury at the time? None other than the Leader of the Opposition. The Prime, Minister, the Prime Minister has not answered the question. He cannot name one other major country that is putting up taxes in a downturn. He asked for some basic arithmetic. I'll give him some. One Prime Minister plus one Chancellor equals economic incompetence. The government has put aside money in the good years to build up their surpluses. At this, instead, this government, at the end of a period of worldwide economic growth, has achieved a unique double, the highest tax burden in our history and the biggest budget deficit in Western Europe. Does he feel any responsibility for any of this, or is he totally incapable of admitting his mistakes? Mr. Speaker. 
the highest tax burden in our country happened under a Conservative government in the 1980s. The rising deficit in the world is a rising deficit in America, which will be higher than ours. I just wish he knew something about economics when he came to this House and started to tell us what to do. The truth is, Mr. Speaker, we have cut corporation tax from 30p to 28 pence. We have cut income tax from the beginning of April from 22 pence to 20 pence. All he can give us is slogans and not substance. They have learned nothing from their experience of the 1990s. Alan Simpson. <coughs> is the government on course for delivering the Prime Minister's commitment to take all vulnerable households out of fuel poverty by 2010? Mr. Mr. Speaker, in the budget, we have put in more money to help low-income households to deal with the fuel bills. And we have done more to cut... We have done more... We have done more to deal with the problems of homelessness and fuel poverty in the last 10 years than they ever did in 18 years. In the budget, we raise the winter fuel allowance, we raise the amount of money available for insulation, and we will continue to do more to meet our social housing targets. Home repossession orders now stand at 100,000, the same as in 1990, and house prices are now falling faster than they were even then. Does the Prime Minister still deny that the crisis facing British homeowners today looks at least as bad as the Tory recession of the early 1990s? Mr. Speaker, I don't know when the Liberal Party will ever learn. Interest rates were 18% at one point in the early 1990s. They are five and a quarter percent today. The number of repossessions in the last year was 27,000. In the first two years of the 1990s, it was 200,000. We are dealing with a quite different situation, and the reason is we didn't take the advice of the Liberal Party and pursued policies for economic stability. Mr. Speaker, is complacency the only thing he has to offer the thousands of British families who are frightened of losing their homes? Will he now instruct the Bank of England to take house prices into account when setting interest rates to stop the boom and bust in the housing market? And will he stop banks from repossessing homes at will and force them to explore all other options to keep British families in their homes? But, but Mr Speaker, the way to deal with the economic problems is to keep inflation low and to keep interest rates low. And that is exactly what we've done. Interest, inf inflation is lower than it is in the rest of Europe and lower than it is in America. And that is why interest rates have managed to come down twice in the last few months where that has not been possible in the euro area. And I do tell them, I do tell them this, that we take seriously our responsibilities to homeowners in this country. That's why there are one and a half million more homeowners now than there were in 1997. That's why interest rates are on average half what they were in the Conservative years. And that's why mortgage rates are lower than they were in the average of these 18 years. And we will continue to ensure that inflation and interest rates are low to the benefit of homeowners. And one way we'll do that is not taking the advice of the Liberal Party. Mr Speaker, after cancer and heart disease, the fear of falling victim to stroke is one of the greatest anxieties faced by elderly people. In Greater Manchester, the decision will be taken shortly to establish three new specialist stroke centres. The Prime Minister will know of the outstanding work done by the stroke service at my hospital, Fairfield Hospital, in the Bury North constituency. 
Would he agree with me that Fairfield will be an ideal location for one of these new specialist stroke centres? My friend, and I know he will push the case hard for Fairfield General Hospital, which I understand does a very good job. There is a Manchester-wide integrated uh, stroke uh, service strategy uh, to be published. We have already put £105 million of government funding to support the general stroke strategy. Up to 6,000 deaths as a result could be avoided. 1,500 strokes could be averted through preventative work. And that's why we will take very seriously not only what he says about his own hospital, but the need to improve stroke services right throughout the country. And that is only possible because we are expanding the money available to the National Health Service. Reverend Dean Paisley, would the Prime Minister give to the people of Northern Ireland today the assurance that no attempt will be supported by the government to countenance any attempt to use the bill, the embryo bill, to bring in by a backdoor legislation that would legalise abortion in Northern Ireland, keeping in mind that all parties in Northern Ireland are opposed to this, and surely that decision should be made by Stormont and Stormont alone. Uh, Can can I say, first of all, it's the first time he's been in the House since he announced uh, that he was uh, uh, giving up his job as First Minister. I want to thank him for everything that he's done as First Minister. I I think the whole uh, House, indeed the whole country, the whole of the United Kingdom, owes a huge debt of gratitude to him for the way he has brought together the parties in Northern Ireland and been a very successful First Minister over the last uh, few months. Uh, The the, the matter of uh, an amendment on abortion uh, to the embryology bill is a matter for this House. Uh, and uh, I do not believe the House will wish to change its mind on these issues, but it is a matter of a free vote of the House of Commons. Dr Alan Whitehead. Does the Prime Minister think that energy companies should do more to help vulnerable groups deal with the cost of their fuel? And does he think they should all introduce standard social tariffs to assist these people? And if they don't, is he prepared to legislate? This is exactly the area where we're working with the energy companies at the moment. We're talking to them. We've said that they need to deliver a package of social assistance to vulnerable households that will increase their spending from what is 56 million a year to 150 million a year. So we want the energy companies uh, who have benefited in a windfall way from what has happened on the European uh, uh, trading uh, licenses in relation to climate change to put an extra 100 million pounds a year into helping the very households he's talking about. Now that is on top of the winter allowance, which we have just extended, and on top of the insulation help that we're giving. I understand at the moment how difficult it is for people because oil, gas and coal prices have risen by between 60 and 80 percent around the world. And that's why with the winter allowance and the extra £100 million that the energy companies are going to be expected to put in, we will do our best by those people who face or are threatened by fuel poverty in this country. Sir Paul Beresford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I've got an interest to declare on this. Mr Speaker, if the media to be believed a few months ago, the Prime Minister will be very aware of the ravages of dental decay. He will also be aware that fluoride is generally considered to be the best way through fluoridation to prevent this particular disease. The Water Act 2003 promised that it would bring fluoridation in. Since then, not a single water supply has been fluoridated. Would the Prime Minister confirm that he agrees with the need for fluoridation and will he meet a small delegation to discuss changes to actually implement fluoridation? I'm personally very sympathetic to what he says. I've seen the benefits of fluoridisation myself. One of the reasons for us putting extra money 
from the health budget into fluoridisation is to encourage that in the country. I'll be very happy to meet a delegation that he suggests. At the same time, the Health Secretary has just told me that 14 million extra money is being put in to help on this, and that is one way that we can encourage local authorities and others to take up fluoridisation. It is a good thing for the teeth of the people of this country. Mr Speaker, did the Prime Minister hear the very warm, almost love letter that President Sarkozy sent to Britain via the Today programme this morning? And when he meets him, can we reciprocate? Because does he agree the... Um, very often, the default setting in our political class, Whitehall, above all the media, is sort of contempt and derision for France. Can we not try and turn the entente cordiale of last century into an entente amicale, even an entente fraternelle, for this century? He's absolutely right. Uh, President uh, Sarkozy and his French government and our government have a great deal in common and a shared agenda for the future. And we will be discussing cooperation on matters related to energy. We'll be discussing cooperation on matters of security. We'll be discussing how we can work together on the environment and the economy. And I believe we will find coming out of these uh, talks a shared agreement to move things further. I believe in the international institutions when it comes to the reform of the economy we will now vote together on crucial areas where we've got to reform the international economy. And that means that he's absolutely right. The Entente Cordiale is moving into a new era. And I hope all sides of the House will welcome this. But it does require Britain to be at the centre of Europe and not isolated from it. Number five, Mr. Speaker. I have no current plans to do so. Such a shame. Uh, Camby Island will soon have 50,000 residents and we need a new access road from a different point on the island for environmental, for regeneration, but particularly for safety reasons if we ever need to evacuate the island again. And the Prime Minister will remember that 58 people lost their lives on Camby Island at the last great flood because they couldn't be evacuated off the island. Will he join me in pressing Essex County Councillors who are, which is Conservative control, to make this their top priority. Because if they do, we'll get our access road that we need. If they don't, the people will know who to blame. I'm grateful uh, to um, the Honourable Member because he's allowed me to point out that we've increased spending on roads by 80% in real terms since we came to power. And it will more than have doubled in real terms in the years uh, up to the next decade. But it is the responsibility of Essex County Council to bring forward a scheme that provides value for money and meets environmental objectives. Uh, and I know that Essex County Council is neither of his party nor ours. I hope, I hope however, they will listen to his representations. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, will my right honourable friend take the opportunity of the next few days to talk with President Sarkozy about working closely with the Chinese government and working uh, helpfully with the Chinese government about finding a sol solution that is peaceful and uh, lasting to the Tibet question. Will he do that? Well, I'm grateful to him because uh, this is, is an issue that concerns not only France and Britain but concerns the whole world. An issue, as I said last week, on which I've talked to Premier Wen. Uh, he may know that uh, there was a human rights uh, dialogue uh, with the Chinese government at the beginning of the year. Uh, officials from Britain visited uh, Tibet and reported upon that. Uh, we are determined to draw to the attention of the Chinese uh, government changes that do need uh, to be made. 
Uh, we urge constraint uh, where there has been uh, violence. We urge reconciliation where there is a lack of dialogue. Uh, and I repeat that the authorities in China and the Dalai Lama should, subject to the conditions that have been laid down, get into talks. We are determined uh, to help a process and to facilitate a process of dialogue and reconciliation. Mr Speaker, given re reports that uh, embassy staff in Washington have been uh, forbidden from using the expression the special relationship, for the benefit of the people of this country and of perhaps President uh, Sarkozy, could the Prime Minister now define uh, his understanding of the meaning of the special relationship between the United Kingdom and our closest ally, the United States? Yeah. As, as, as he says, uh, our closest uh, ally, our single most important partner, and the special relationship is a term I use with pride. Yeah. Betty Williams. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. As my right honourable friend knows, the Foreign Secretary at the Foreign Office last night launched the government's uh, uh, Human Rights Annual Report. Will he join with me in congratulating the many uh, volunt voluntary organisations who contribute so much in fostering human rights across the world? Um, and including my fellow members of the Seraptimus International in North Wales <laughs> with uh, Project Sierra, who aim to, um, to, to transform the lives of orphan children following war in Sierra Leone. Mr Speaker, I believe the House should congratulate the Seraptimus and all those who work for human rights in every part of the world, particularly those who worked for the achievement of the Geneva Convention, but do so under dangerous and risky conditions where sometimes their lives are at risk. The Human Rights Report, published by the Foreign Secretary yesterday, draws attention to areas in the world where human rights abuses have got to be addressed. One important area, I think, that will be in the eyes of the world this weekend is Zimbabwe, where it is important we draw attention to abuses that exist and call for a restoration, a full restoration of democracy in that country. Does the Prime Minister think it right that the West Coast Main Line should have to wait till 2012 for new carriages? Will he intervene in the dispute between the Department of Transport and, and, uh, and the Virgin Trains to get a resolution to this problem? Yeah. I, I just have to tell him we've spent £7 billion modernising the West Coast Line. No government could have done more to make it possible for more people to travel on that line and travel on railways. And of course, the number of passengers using railways is now above a billion for the first time since the Second World War. I'm big. What would my right honourable friend say about a local authority which has slashed services to disabled people in such a cavalier fashion that they are now threatening to take the council to court because of its failure to comply with its equality duty under the 2005 Disability Discrimination Act? Well, Mr Speaker, it, it used to be the Conservative councils that were the only councils that were making huge cuts, but it's now SNP and Liberal Democrat councils, and that is what's happened in Aberdeen. And I think people will be particularly sad to hear that the disabled members of the community in Aberdeen are the biggest victims of the cuts that are being brought in by that administration, and I hope that public opinion will express itself and say that disabled people should not suffer in this way. The period of the Entente Amicale, as well as the special relationship with our American allies, can I draw the Prime Minister's attention to the state of relations between the EU and NATO, which the Defence Select Committee has urged should be a priority at next week's NATO summit? Could I urge him 
to address what the American ambassador to NATO has called this senseless and frozen conflict between the two institutions? And will he secure the agreement of President Sarkozy, who we welcome in London today, to resolve this problem so that neither the EU undermines NATO nor NATO the EU? Yeah, yeah. I, I believe that both uh, NATO and the European Union have important jobs to do. I believe in my discussions uh, with President Sarkozy, we will see him amenable to changes uh, in NATO that will bring its European members closer to the heart of NATO uh, near in the future. I also believe a relationship between the EU and NATO, where the EU does more of the civilian reconstruction work, matching the military work of NATO as is happening in Kosovo, is one of the ways that we can cement a better relationship between the two organisations. We are proud to be both a member of NATO and the European Union. Thanks, Mr. Speaker. As science is so important to the North West and to the UK economy, will my right honourable friend ensure that the Science Research Council retains key scientific skills at Darsbury Laboratory so we can continue to produce world-leading science? Well done, Helen. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, I, I can tell my honourable friend, who's fought very hard uh, for all the investments that have been made at Darsbury Science Park, that the Department of uh, the Universities and Innovation is committed to developing a science and innovation campus at Daresbury. That was announced in the budget of 2006. It was confirmed in December 2007. The next step is that Sir Tom McKillop, the chairman of the Royal Bank of Scotland, has been asked to include Daresbury in the Northwest Review he is carrying out. We are committed to additional investment on science and technology in her region and to all the jobs that flow from it, making it possible for the Northwest to continue to increase employment in what is a difficult period for the world economy. Nigel Dodds. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. In his article in the Daily Telegraph yesterday, Why We Must Stand Up for the Union, with which I heartily agree, the Prime Minister mentioned Scotland, he mentioned Wales, he mentioned uh, England. Will he now take the opportunity to tell the House what his predecessor once said, that he values the union between Great Britain and Northern Ireland? Yeah. Not, not only do I value the union, that I will work uh, to make that union strong. Uh, and if he were to look at the website of the Daily Telegraph, he will see that Northern Ireland was included in that article, not excluded. Order. A point of order, Mr. Winnie. Mr. Speaker, would it be possible for the House to know if the appeal by the House of Commons Commission to the Appeal Court is limited on the question of addresses? or on the wider question of second homes. If the former, that would be perfectly understandable on grounds of security. If, however, the appeal against the Information Tribunal is on the wider question of expenditure on what is described as second homes, then I think, Mr Speaker, it should be noted that some members, certainly myself, are very much opposed to the appeal being lodged. And it is unfortunate, in my view, that no uh, way of voting Order. is can allowed I, on this. I, I stop the honourable gentleman there. The, this matter is before the court, and therefore it is sub judice for the House of Commons. I know that the media can talk about it, but for the House of Commons, the rules are quite clear. It's before the court, and it's sub judice, and I cannot discuss it. But many of the questions that the honourable gentleman is raising are asking about he can go to the court and find out the grounds for the appeal. Nothing to stop him doing that. Order. 